Hello and welcome to Adventures in Venueland, an EAMC podcast. This is your all-access pass to go backstage and behind the scenes with some of the brightest minds that cross the scope of the live entertainment industry. I'm Dave Rettelberger. And I'm Paul Hooper. We'll introduce you to some of our favorite people as we dive deep into the world of live touring shows and the venues that host them. Today's adventure takes us to Philadelphia. We're going to speak with the Vice President for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for Oakview Group. She's uh, based out of OBG's corporate office there in Philly, Dr. Debonair Oates-Primus, or as, as we get to know her a little bit during the EAMC conference this year, Dr. Deb. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hi, everyone. You know, we had such a great time talking with you there uh, in Minneapolis, and and I wanted to make sure that all our Adventures in Venue Land listeners got to hear kind of what you're doing. So instead of me kind of explaining what you do, from my understanding, why don't why don't you tell us kind of what you're doing? Because it's a very unique thing that that OVG has uh, has done here. Yeah, and I'll tell you, Dave. Honestly, my family does not know what I do. <laughs> I have one of those. I have one of those jobs where. I get all the time, what exactly do you do? And then after I tell them, oh, okay. And, but like, it never sticks. But yeah, basically, right. <laughs> seriously, it's one of those jobs. But it's because in lots of industries, DEI is like emerging, even though it's been here for a while. So basically I oversee um, all of Ophi Groups, which is a venue development company, um, all of our DEI strategy, our community partnerships, our initiatives. Um, and anything that falls under the realm of DEI. So that means that I oversee our DEI hiring strategy, diversifying our talent pipelines, for example, making sure that DEI is infusing the DNA of our company, which means in all the business sectors. So I could do all the fun stuff, but not really. Um, (laughs) 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 People think I'm the fun and you guys were at the conference until I start talking about like what that actually means, right? It means they have to build their capacity for change because my work definitely comes with pushing folks to change their old processes, their old systems, make them more equitable. It means that some folks might have to, you know, be more transparent. It means that we have to make room for other folks that have been marginalized. So it's fun times until I start talking. And then, (laughs) and then it's eye rolls like, oh crap. Okay. Like, (laughs) so. But it's important eye rolls and important. I mean, it's, it's, you have to have those conversations. And I think we've talked to some previous guests about this, but uh, I think you'll probably agree with this. One of those biggest hurdles is that in order to make change, you have to admit that there's room for it. Right. And I think that is the biggest hurdle is a lot of businesses, a lot of CEOs, that, uh, you know, kind of might all look the same of a certain age. They all want to think, oh, we're doing a pretty good job. We could do better, but we're doing a good job. And they might not be. And it's tough to admit that there's room to grow there. I mean, it's tough to admit that, but then we have to go any further. We have to like, when like they say to me, for example, when you just said, oh, there might be like, we're doing pretty good. They're not really tracking it. So I'm the person right. that comes, like, we actually have to look at the numbers. And then it's like, 
right? Pause for it. I'm yeah. not yeah. joking, no. right? I'm not like, this is my everyday. I had two meetings this morning where I literally was like, so on Wednesday, I'm going to be showing you guys our key findings. We just did um, six strategic DEI focus groups with the company to sort of, you know, fill the room out and figure out what our baseline is as far as organizational culture and how employees feel about our pledge to DEI and our commitment to it. And yeah. the meetings were going on, all the senior leaders did. But Wednesday, I had the meeting where I show them our key findings and what employees actually um, responded to. And I gave a little bit of a spoiler. I was like, and it's really compelling data. We have a lot of work to do. And immediately <laughs> faces tense. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, like, Great. I know, I know. <laughs> but like tracking it and measuring it and looking at those numbers, I have a lot of, in DI, I call it like aha and then um, ouch moments, right? So any DI yeah. practitioner has to vacillate between aha moments and ouch moments. The aha moments are fun. They're revelatory. But the ouch moments are like, so I have I have our official numbers of our employee demographics. And it's like pause for eye rolls, like it's just nervousness. Like what are they? And then what you what they normally see is like, it's not what they thought. Because for many folks, DI is visible. So like they tell me things like, I'm in meetings and I see a few folks of color. So yes, we're doing well, right? I'm like, <laughs> that's not how yeah. that's how it works most of the time. Folks yeah, are like, yeah. I just hired someone from an underrepresented background, so we're doing great. Right. And I'm like, we've yeah. done one for the month. We're good. Yeah, we're good. <laughs> we have one Jeez. and you, and we're doing great. And yeah, right. so fun times. Let's talk about this position because. You know, this is something. Is there is there a Dr. Deb? At, you know, in other in other some of the other big companies around, and are there other people that you're connected with across you know the industry that are you know making that same charge outside of OVG? Yes. So the answer, to like your first question, is yes and no. So there are a few ways DI operationalizes in companies, right? So sometimes a company like OVG Group hires a VP of DEI or director of DEI. But I've also met lots of folks. There's this new organization called the Pro Sports Assembly, and they've made um, a focused DEI, but it's it's a collective of folks who really care about DEI from the pro sports industry. And we had a retreat a few um, weeks ago in Austin, Texas. It was amazing. Not your regular retreater conference. Um, It was super diverse. They were really intentional about the group that was there. But what I learned was there were folks from all different sectors who were doing DI. I'm at a VP of finance for for a sports team, for example, who's a person from an underrepresented group who is passionate about DEI, like and was doing it. I met a head of legal from a sports team who, same thing, that wasn't her job, but that was, you know, um, what she was focusing on. And that's sort of how I started doing this work too, right? Like so many of our journeys are the same. We are passionate about this because it, it like directly affects us and we start doing it. And then the company realizes that this is something they should be focusing on and you get like an extra task. Like you're so great at this. You're so passionate about this. Do it. So right. but then I've also had the luxury of meeting other folks through the Pro Sports Assembly, um, the director of DEI for the Atlanta Hawks, um, for example, she and I have been talking a lot about similar initiatives and programming and goals that we have. And we've been talking about creating a collective, right? A collective of just folks in like in our industries doing this work, our challenges, and then like become like a space for resources and just like a venting space. DIY work can be really lonely, 
when you're like the only one or you have a small team of folks. So just having a safe space to vent because so much of the time we're the safe space for our employees, right? I get unloaded so much and I want to be that space for them. But then it's like, can we create a space for us to like talk about, I had three meetings today and it's driving me crazy that I can't get buy-in for this particular initiative. Sure. Yeah. It's, I mean, it sounds like what you hear people who are like nurses or something struggle with, right? Where they're constantly yep. kind of taking on that emotional burden from other people and and you want to be there, but you have to constantly balance how do you be empathetic and also not take it home uh, with you, you know, at night to where you're bearing the this burden that other people have kind of offloaded. And I'm sure that's a big challenge, but also, uh, you know, an important thing that you're able to provide that for people because I'm sure they don't have that outlet often. They don't. They don't. And mostly folks with underrepresented backgrounds don't have that. But then it's also layered because I'm also a person who identifies as like three underrepresented groups, right? So I grew up um, socioeconomically working class, um, a West Philly, like the Fresh Prince song. My mom and I are 19 years apart. She's a single mom. She raised me and my sister together. So I come from a working class family. I'm a first generation college student. I'm a black woman. Um, So also a lot of the times I'm dealing with a lot of the same pressures and frustrations that the the people who come to me to unload are. And I have to sort of make that division when they're talking to me about it, right? For instance, our diversifying our talent pipelines. Sometimes I hear stories and I'm mad. I'm just as mad as the person telling me, but because I'm in this role, my job is to be solution oriented. I'm like, okay, in this, in this space, this person needs me to provide solutions. And then I hang up and I'm just like throwing stuff against the wall. Like, why is this happening? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Cause like in the world that we're living in right now, for example, I created a, um, a process where after every national injustice, we would create like a safe space session for our employees to, you know, just have a space for them to talk and unpack what's going on. And we did one um, after the Buffalo shooting and to honor the second anniversary of the George Floyd murder. And it was a really great session, but it was really emotionally intense. And, you know, I'm trained to facilitate these kind of sessions, but being a Black woman, being a Black woman from an urban city like Minneapolis, right, it was hard at times for me to, like, listen to Black employees in particular talk about their frustrations and their anger. And then, you know, I have to be the person who, like, absorbs all of that, right? And then gives them self-care strategies and gives them optimism that our company takes this seriously and committed. And then afterwards, I just close my laptop and just like ball for five minutes though, because I'm also done with that same trauma, right? I'm also really upset that Black communities like the one in Buffalo are being attacked. And I'm part of that, you know, I'm part of that in-group. So it gets sticky, but it's work that I'm really passionate about. Dr. Deb, what does, what does DEI mean to you? Because you know, some people, you know, you hear DEI, you hear DENI, you hear equality, you hear equity. But, you know, what, what does DEI mean to you? That's such a great question. And it's a great question that I get a lot um, in this work. So just so you know, I've had practice answering this question. Even yeah, all right, all right. <laughs> I just want to let you know. But um, just going back to me, and I said this during the conference, right, when I was asked that question similar to like what you just asked. And Folks tend to think that DEI work is like really altruistic. I get a lot, thank you for doing this work as if I'm a veteran. But really when I I think about what DEI work means for me, it means carving out space that, that wasn't designed for people who look like me, 
right? So I started doing DEI work when I think about it, probably in grad school, right? Well, like when I think about how I was in these highly academic spaces that historically were not designed for people who look like me. And I had the academic pedigree. I was top of my class, but I didn't feel like I belonged because my background was so different. I was constantly being asked to be the, repre- the like representation of my whole race because I was the only black person in my class. And then I joined the career field after I got my graduate degree and it was the same kind of thing. So DI work means carving out space and negotiating space for people who are the other, who are from the marginalized groups, right? So many companies think that DEI is just about visibility and hiring diverse talent, but we don't talk enough about what are those spaces like once they get there. And I have that first-hand experience of what it's like when you get there and it's lonely and you don't feel like, you, I'm like, you can bring your authentic self into the space. And when folks hear that from me, they're like, you seem like you're so comfortable here. And I'm like, you don't know most of my identities, right? I just told you I'm a first-generation college student. So my family is traditionally Black in Philadelphia. I co-switch all the time. I'm co-switching now to fit into this environment, right? It's not how I would normally communicate with family members and all of that. So DEI means making space for folks on the margins to bring most of their authentic self in it for me. And I get to do that in a number of ways, right? And I love it. I love the fact, because I didn't have it. I'm creating spaces that weren't that weren't there for any parts of my journey, not my academic journey, my, not like not in my career, and just little things that I'm teaching folks that they can do to make spaces way more safer and braver. Because if, if you want folks, one representative groups like me to be in these spaces, you gotta get brave and not just worry about safety. Right. Because brave means you got to be able to hear my hard truth. Sometimes a hard truth might mean after a Buffalo shooting, I don't want to like like microanalyze this incident right now because I'm really angry right now. And I have to be able to come into my workspace and say, I'm really angry right now. Not at one specific person, but just angering. But as a black woman, historically, me being angry in, in spaces that are occupied by dominant culture, that's not safe for me. Right. It is not safe for me to be visibly angry. So I conceal that I suppress it so that I can be more palatable, more agreeable, more likable to my peers. And yeah, so DI means I get to create spaces where less of us have to do that as often. Now you've given that answer before because that's so it's so eloquent. (laughs) Yeah, that's so great. Renditions of it. No, no, it's good. It's good. I can tell you really mean it, though. That's the that's the thing. It's not just something you, you know, you say I can tell it's something that you live every day. Yeah, I do. And I think that's like that's the beauty of this work. Right. Like I bring so much of my lived experience into the work that I do. So it makes me more empathetic, which is what you need. Right. If you're committed to DEI work, you have to become empathetic listeners and empathetic leaders. And I think that's what folks see in me. I'm, you know, there's not a story that a colleague tells me that shocks me. And, you know, I work really hard on not always having a solution, but making sure that they feel heard and seen in those experiences. And I think a lot of it comes from my lived experience, my training, but also the fact of like, I'm always thinking, what do I want? What didn't I get when I told the professor in her office that I wanted to go to a PhD program? And she told me I was a city girl and I wouldn't, this is a true story. And I wouldn't make it in a rural area where I wanted to go to school to get my PhD. And that was her sole reason for not recommending me because I was asking for like a recommendation. And her sole reason was not my 
grade point average. That was a 3.97 at the time. It was just, you are a city girl. That she was completely basing, I guess, on, I don't know, the way I dressed and <laughs> the fact that I told the class that I was. So I keep those moments in mind when I'm listening to other colleagues from other underrepresented groups, even when I can't relate. I'm like, what do they need in the moment, right? And how do I support them in this space? What do you think, um, I, I know this is probably oversimplifying it by asking this question, but there are a number of venues out there that aren't a part of like a big Oakview group company or an AEG or a Live Nation or any of these large venue management. And uh, speaking from someone that used to work at one and now, now uh, you know, I work at a different location and my former employer is a part of that, but uh, there are challenges where maybe there's people in the company that do want to make that change and they don't have the support maybe nationally. What do you think is like a good first step for them? Is there a good, you know, first step that they can kind of take to try to help shift that, uh, that mentality within their workplace, because it might be uh, a somewhat stodgy uh, <laughs> boardroom, if oh, you will. I know. I get this question a lot, Paul. I think it came up in, during the conference as one of the questions um, in my panel, actually. And I love that question because I think folks think that you have to start doing DEI work in this really big, bold way. And that's not true. It wasn't my journey. I didn't even think I was going to be doing DEI work. I got my PhD in literature and criticism with a concentration in Black feminism and post-colonialism, right? I thought I was going to have a whole career in academia. And um, I was on the tenure track at, a, at like an institution like in Philadelphia. And um, surprise, surprise, I was one of very few Black professors in my department. And my department chair, who was a white woman, but also my mentor, was like, I want you to be part of like this next hiring committee. That's how you choose faculty in higher ed. Sure. And she, she said, I'm not going to lie to you. I want you to be part of it because we need somebody from your perspective on it. I want us to hire more folks like you. And it's not going to happen if we don't start putting you on. Anyway, I joined it begrudgingly because it was more work and it's unpaid in higher ed. And it's a long process. And I was the only person of color on my hiring committee. And it was hard work. One person kind of get all of these like traditional white colleagues to prioritize folks from diverse backgrounds of applicant pool of 200 was really hard. I went back to my boss and I'm like, I can't do this by myself. They need training, like training on unconscious bias before we move forward. And she was like, okay, I have some money in my budget, you know, um, get someone to do it. A friend of mine recommended someone and they did it and it was horrible. Oh my God, it was so bad. And anyway, after it was over, the hiring committee looked at me and said, is this what you wanted, Deb? Is is this your idea of training for us? And they were kind of saying it sarcastically. And I ended up doing one right then. I didn't, it it wasn't a a formal training, but I was like, no, I was hoping that they would teach you guys about unconscious bias and the way your blind spots influence your decision-making and how that is deciding who you see as like ideal candidates. Anyway, an hour goes by. And they're all like, this is all we need to know. And my boss says, can you do this training for all of our hiring committees? That was the start of my DEI work. Like what that expanded into was me identifying other folks from other departments who were also hearing about what I was doing and they wanted the same goals for their departments. And we formed a collective. It was informal. We didn't call each other anything at the moment. It was just folks who had the same purpose 
and the same goal. And over years, we created DEI Council, but that took years. In the beginning, we were just folks who were meeting periodically to talk about what we were doing in our departments. And what we ended up forming eventually was a DEI Council, where DEI steering committees, um, we created ex-officios that had to be a part of every single hiring committee. We worked with HR to transform the hiring process to create some roles in, but that's not where we started. To answer your question, Paul, is just start somewhere. It starts like, like with a conversation with a colleague or a coworker that has similar interests. When I think about when I first started doing this DI work, it started with folks who look like me complaining and venting in, like, in our offices with the door closed because we were too scared to hear for folks to hear it. And then that's the group I tapped when I was asked to do this work on a more formal level. And I hear folks all the time when I'm at conferences say the same things. There's a small group of us. We all want to do this, but we don't have enough support. I'm like, start anyway. Start with the smallest action you can. Start with speaking up in a meeting. When I think about my journey and where it started, I was in a large department, 300 faculty, and I just said, I raised my hand to me and, and I had a brave moment where I just was like, are we going to talk about the ways that bias influences are? And, you know, it didn't go well. I want folks to know it wasn't like I said it and they were like, thank you and applause. <laughs> sure. What happened at all. No, it was the opposite, actually. Folks got angry and they accused me of accusing them, right, of being racially yeah. biased and all the things. And they formed groups of resistance against the work that I was doing. But I guess, Paul, that's what I would say to folks who are interested. One, start somewhere. Start with just gathering folks with similar interests, but also prepare yourselves for pushback and for resistance because that's what this work is. DEI work is being a positive disruptor, which means you are going to be in positive confrontations. I put that like that word on, like on top of it all the time, right? Because, yeah. I mean, the world is messed up and we're not... I can't fix systemic racism or heterosexism or the patriarchy or any of that, which means I am working against those systems every time I have a conversation. So, Dr. Deb, talk to us about how you got from that point of, you know, that that, you know, that hiring committee where you kind of turn things around to then working in the live event industry. So walk us through walk us through how you ended up with OVG. Oh my goodness. Okay, so I was um, working in a college like in Philadelphia, being like my DEI lead. That example that I gave you was five years ago. I ended up our CDO, Chief Diversity Officer, retired and I ended up taking over his job at my current institution. And um, a recruiter from OBG reached out to me and said, would you mind taking a meeting with us? And I did it because you don't say no to those kind of meetings. And they had never, I should have said this like in the beginning, this is the first time OVG has had this kind of role. So they were just like, we have been doing DI work really episodically, right? But we really want to, you know, um, centralize it, create systems and processes. And I went through about three or four interviews and I was on the fence because I didn't know what kind of DI work they had been doing yet. So I just, I want to make sure that they, they, like the work that I was doing, if I transitioned into this space, was still going to be intentional intentional and purpose-driven and not checkboxing. And I was nervous. But I guess what won me over was I had a conversation, my last interview with, um, at the time, the CFO and the head of legal for the company. And this might sound really crazy, but what sold me was them saying, you would... I had all these questions that you're supposed to ask your interviewers. You know, some questions were like, who owns, you know, uh, the DEI communication? And they didn't have answers to these sure. things. Sure. 
They didn't, yeah. but that's what I liked. And then at the end, they just said, you know what? You would have full autonomy over all of this. Your questions make us think about all of our blind spots and what we haven't thought about. And this is why we want you. And in DEI worlds, it's just really uncommon for you to be able to completely construct your own blueprint and agenda, right? Like it's just, even when they say that, right? Like, like that's not the case. It wasn't, it's certainly right. in my old. Do um, this, but within this box, exactly, you know? Right, exactly. yes. And I was really drawn to the fact that OBG, I was recently transitioning from a merger and they were this larger company, but also they were this company that was really excited and, and enthusiastic about this work. They had already made it one of their pillars. So, right, that was also showing me that like, that, like their level of commitment with it. And again, even as I began, every meeting that I had, folks were just really excited about this work and just like, we really want you to take us wherever this journey takes us and you can do. And I mean, you just don't get that kind of autonomy that often with DEI and that drew me to the live events industry and also just the reach was so much larger than where I was, right? I mean, the work that I get to do impacts not just our venues, but partnerships. And I'm working on um, a diverse supplier program right now for our company. And I love that part of our mission is going to be, you know, um, giving access to underrepresented businesses right like business owners to a company like ours which like I mean, like you look I'm like look at the data you know I think it's something like less than three percent of all black owned business like in the country you know um have scaled up enough to work with companies like ours and yeah the fact that like I get to make a small dent in that number mm-hmm. with our diverse supplier program and I have the full backing and support of our company to do it and the way that I want to do it literally I just have meetings where I'm like so this is the like outline for the program and they're like, great, keep us updated and let me know how we can support you. And I'm just like, where am I? (laughs) (laughs) It's a lot of work, right? Oh, it's so so much work. But, you know, talk to, you know, like just this week, you said, you know, you are working with uh, different cities where they are setting up well, let's just get into specifics. Like, like, what's this week? You said after after you finish this up, you're heading down to Miami, right? Yeah, I'm going to Miami to meet with the DI committee of our Miami Convention Center and work on some Hispanic heritage on-site events they want to do at their particular um, venue. But yeah, like you were saying, Dave, it is hard work. And one of my challenges is because our company has expanded so quick. We're we're in a hyper growth phase right now, right? I mean, so getting everyone involved in the DEI work, right? And getting them to see that they should be a part of it in these really intentional ways, it's a huge challenge. And I'm just starting to bite off that elephant, right? And I I can figure out how I created a new governing structure, DEI governing structure at OVG, which is like our DEI council, but, it's, but it has four different governing bodies. One of the governing bodies is supposed to be just venue level DI committees. But of course, my biggest challenge there is there are some venues that already have them. There are some venues that don't. And I have to, any DI practitioner's challenges getting folks to buy into this. And this is something that is a priority because folks don't see it as revenue generating on the surface, right? So some folks feel like it's like ancillary. Right, like sure, we'll get to it. And giving the business case and driving the business case for DEI is how I get buy-in from these venues, but mm-hmm. it's gonna take time and it's it's hard. And I have lots of folks who are just like, 
how do we get involved? I was on a call the other day with our venue in Manchester in the UK. And they're like, we see all of the emails. We want to get in on this. How do we get in on this? And and I'm just like, it's, it's kind of overwhelming because time zones. And I'm just like, I can't do what like I normally do like with other venues. Like here are ERGs and here's when they meet. And I'm just like, okay, I have to get innovative and figure out how do I bring them into this community? And also the fact that they're not, that diverse of a group at all. So how I had the Ouch moment eventually, right? Like the Ouch moment has to be in a few weeks, we're also saying, let's talk about diversifying your hiring strategies and talent pipeline so we can get more folks in who are actually from diverse backgrounds. Because again, most people, when they come to me at first, they're like super excited, like DI, we're so excited until they realize that it means I actually have to like call them in for a minute. They'd be like, I'm so happy you're excited. I am too, because it looks like we got a lot of work to do on your end. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad you're so enthusiastic. I know, I know. So. And, then, and then the smile fades eventually. And they're like, oh, really? I'm like, yeah. Have you looked at your recent demographic numbers of your of your workforce right now? Right. And again, smile, smile is fading now. I'm just like, yeah. So we're gonna we're gonna work on that and maybe get you guys some training so we can figure out and this, and then and then there is no more smile. That smile is like replaced with a grimace or a scowl. It's like, okay, now this is not what I thought DI work was going to be. They think it's going to be all, you know, like help me decorate my venue for Pride Month. And, you know, how do you, you know, I'm like, yep, we're going to do all that too. We're also going to get to work and figure out how, you know, we identify your blind spots. We talk about I'm like, the moment I start asking for data, it goes downhill. I'm like, can you send me your latest um, vendor supplier list so I can look forward to see if you're, you know, partnering with minority businesses and small business and women? They're like, wait, that's what you're going to do? I become like the DI police. I'm serious. I quickly become like a police officer. I'm like, no, I just... I just want to see them. And then, you know, the data request. Oh, my God. The all the emails I have to do just to get it because folks don't want to show it because then, you know. Yeah. It's, yeah. Like they feel like it's like um, um, this something like changing the culture. Cause I think lots of folks think that if they show me these things, they're in trouble. And I'm like, you're not. Right, in trouble. Right. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah, like I wouldn't be here. You wouldn't need me if your numbers were good. Just think about it that way. Like you would just be like, we don't need like a DEI person. We're like, we're great. So I wouldn't have a job if the numbers were good. I think you bring up two really good points in that sometimes beyond the ethical uh, reasoning for making changes, uh, sometimes it is easier to sell in some ways when you do look at data and you look at uh, like the bottom line, because unfortunately for some people, the bottom line is what changes the business more than the ethics, which is sad, but you see it even when it comes to like, you know, green initiatives, right? Like all these car manufacturers aren't making any difference. And then all of a sudden a green car comes out that is really competitive. And then like, if anyone watched the Super Bowl, there was like 40, uh, yeah. you know, ads for green cars that all of a sudden now it's like, oh shit, we need to jump on this because now it's a business decision. And so I, I love that you are highlighting that. And I do think, you know, hopefully more people are seeing it as not only an ethical thing, which is it at 100% is, but it also makes more business sense to have a more diverse uh, organization. You know, you're, you're, you're representing more perspectives. You're, you're having people that are bringing all different backgrounds into 
the discussion, which you would not be able to understand otherwise. And so I think I think it's a great point that you were making there. Yeah, and it's not reactionary. What about OBG is so many companies hire people like me when they're reacting to a civil action like lawsuit or right like I mean I'm like a class action like lawsuit or something sure. right like something that has smudged right the companies and they're like and now we need it and now we have to make this case and now we need diverse perspectives and I love that for OBG it was just like we need it because it's the right thing to do and it's 2022 and we live in like a world where it's it should be it should be common sense that right like you need diverse perspectives to drive innovation, right? Like so much of like the business case is like, if you want to be like an innovative company, how innovative can you be without perspectives like from diverse backgrounds? And just, you know, have to sift through, I mean, the conversations I have sometimes, the like debates I have with folks, there are folks who fight me on what diversity is. That's my favorite debate. I kind of like <laughs> get petty a little bit. And <laughs> Some people don't like the debate, but I come from like an economic background and I love it. And I think folks don't realize when they first start talking to me that like it's coming. I was talking to a former colleague. He said he wanted to be part of DI work. And, and then he starts talking to me about how he's earned his position. And he's, and I'm like, where am I? I'm like, where is this going? And he's like, you know, part of why I don't is because, you know, he didn't say this, but I think with his, I try to like articulate that he disagrees with like male privilege and white privilege. And he's worked really hard for all of, you know, all the things that he's gotten. And I'm like, yep, you have. And I know a lot of people who don't look like you who work really hard and never get to where you and I are, right? I come from a working class family and I come from like a working class neighborhood. And I grew up around a lot of black folks who worked really hard for most of their lives and never got above working class socioeconomically right? Never own their house, right? Never own their car, don't have a savings, right? So just this idea of not acknowledging the ways that racism and patriarchy and sexism like intersects with all of these institutions to keep certain people from succeeding is a task that I have taken on. And sometimes it causes me to be in really intense debates where I'm like, yep, no one's saying you haven't worked hard, but just we also need to understand that some folks work really hard and never get here. And I feel like I, I do that by sharing more of my personal story because folks like to use me as like the exception. But look, look at you. And I'm like, yeah, my mom worked three jobs so that I can go to private school. Seriously, right? Because if I went to like the neighborhood schools in my neighborhood, then I would not have um, gotten here, right? I'm like, she worked two jobs and I babysat my sister who's four years younger than me most days and got dinner ready before she got there and helped my sister with her homework because she couldn't be there after school just so I can get an education that put me in this spot, right? And that's also a great example of inequity, right? About how all the work had to be done just for me to get a quality education. When you think about that story, like in what it really gets to, it's like she do all of that, all that sacrifice, all that not being there with us, you know, like when we came home, just so I can get a quality education to make college accessible for me. Like period, full stop. That's all that had to happen just for me to have a chance, not even a guarantee that I get in, just to have a chance, right? I worked when I was in grad school in lots of Philadelphia high schools and they don't even have a chance, right? They don't have the base standards to even apply for most colleges. And my mom had to work two jobs just to get, just so I can, you know, I mean, 
I killed it at my private school. So I definitely <laughs> was going to get there, but it still was just right. Like those kind of avenues and getting people also fun for me. I'm like, we're going to go. I, you're going to, you, you are going to give me your meritocracy story. I get it. You've earned it. Now listen attentively. And then I go in for the kill. I'm like, I'm serious, right? These are yeah. It's important though for people to hear that. Yeah, and it's like cool. I get that you worked really hard to get here, but let's like compare trajectories for a minute and how so many folks never even get the option of it. It's why I want my company to do way more. Always need to do way more community engagement events and start, you know, doing some guest speaking to HBCU grads and start going into local under-resourced communities because we're in all of these markets and we should be going in and educating these folks about other pathways into this industry besides athleticism, right? Like, especially right. in Black and Brown communities. We have a really big opportunity at OBG to start educating folks in, like, these communities about what they can do. There are so many great opportunities in the venue industry that they can be taken advantage of. And most of these kids only have these dreams of being in one segment of this industry, which is like the talent side of it. But I want us to start going into these communities and start educating black and brown kids about how they can be the next VP of sales and marketing at a company like mine, right? How they can be the, you know, um, next CFO, right? Or director of marketing or director of internal communications. They don't even know that these jobs exist nor what they do. And if I have it my way, they will know. <laughs> we are going to be in this community teaching them and educating them. Like, I get that you want to like play basketball, but you ever think about, you know what I mean? Like, you know, working in branding or sales and marketing, like with a company like mine that gets to work within this industry and blow their minds a little bit. Yeah. You know, you talk about uh, so, you know, the challenges that you encounter. And I think one of the things that's that I, I imagine is people are always very excited to tell you that they care about DEI, that they are not racist, that they oh, yeah. are in favor of, you know, all things DEI. But when the when the day gets when it gets Monday rolls around, they got that show announced at 10 a.m. and they got that press release they're working on, and they've got that media drop that they got to take care of, and there's something else they got to schedule. Also, by the way, they got to get kids to soccer by you know 4:30, and I really care about this, yeah, but I, yeah. I I don't know how to fit it into my day, I right? Know. And and so how do I, how do you you know, get people to prioritize making the time for DEI? Oh my God, Dave, that's such a great question and example because you're right, just prioritizing it. But I think one way, the most powerful way I do it is identifying what you just said as a point of privilege. So when someone tells me they don't have time to prioritize this, I'm like, that is a privilege that you have to say you don't have time for it. People who look like me don't ever say they don't have time for it because it directly affects our lived experience. Right. And it directly affects my workplace experience. So one way that I do it, my most powerful way is by gently identifying that that statement is a privileged statement. You get to choose and opt in and opt out of when you want to support. When you break down what DEI is, I love to like define it for them. Instead of using DEI, I'm like, what that means is you don't have time to carve out safe and brave spaces for people from underrepresented groups. You're telling me you don't have time to expand our workforce so that it includes more people from underrepresented groups. You talk about a guilt trip? It is the best guilt trip. <laughs> <laughs> I end it like, you're saying you don't have time for us to pour into under-resourced communities that we occupy with our venues. 
period. That's to the truth, right? Right. No. And when I say it like that, they're like, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm like, okay, cool. So you'll be at like my meeting next month, like I'm like next Tuesday. And <laughs> right, like that's what you're really saying. Like when you like when you talk about DEI, which is really about equity, right? About creating, you know, about like transforming systems of inequity, right? And that means like you don't have time for that. And our company does have time for it. Another guilt trip, like I pull on them all the time, was like you work for a company that has pledged their mission to support DEI. So to me, it's like you saying you work in finance and you don't have time to like to compose an Excel sheet, spreadsheet, really, because that's your job now, right? That's right. Your job. that's yeah. how also I feel like with folks. We work for a company that has made a commitment to DNI, so it's part of what you do. This is how you start to embed DEI into the DNA and fabric of a company. It has to be a part. Like this is not something you do when you have time. This is something you do because our company has pledged its commitment to this. And unless you don't want to work here anymore, (laughs) you need to make the time to support this company's new mission and vision. Well, and I think there is this massive misconception, not not just in the industry, this is societal, but that admitting privilege somehow means that you didn't work hard. I know. And I I think that's, that's people are like, oh, if I admit that I'm privileged, that means that, you know, I didn't work hard in school or I didn't work hard to get where I'm at. And, and I think probably we've all had that conversation and some of us more than others, but it's like, you know, I, I, you know, talk within my friend group where I try to, you know, uh, to the best of my ability, educate people on their privilege. And, and that is usually the gut reaction people have is like, well, no, I'm, I'm not privileged. I, you know, da, 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 da. And I'm like, yeah, well, look at the color of your skin. You are privileged whether, you know, no matter what. And, uh, and I think it's it's a tough, I don't know, it's a, it's an unfortunate thing that people seem to kind of uh, marry those two together and feel like they can't admit privilege without letting their ego down to, uh, you know, show that, you know, they didn't, they weren't, you know, you know, it's, it's, I don't know, it's, I don't know where I'm going with that, but it's no, <laughs> more so me just right. laying it out there. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. And it's not a zero sum game and folks think like all of us have sites of privilege. When folks say that with me, I just, I just start to like identify mine. I'm like, I don't have many because I am a black woman, but, you know, I am a heterosexual woman, which means I never have to defend who I want to marry. I never have to worry about if I'm walking down a dark street at night. I'm a woman. I do worry. But if I'm with my partner, I don't have to worry that we're going to be attacked or ridiculed or harshly criticized or, you know, like that's a privilege of mine. And when folks get really insecure about their privilege, Paul, it usually means their friend group and their, it's probably really homogeneous because all it takes, one of like my good friends is a trans man. And just that friendship with him has taught me so much about that particular identity, right? And like, there's no way if your friend group is diverse, then you get insecure about your privilege anymore because I see it. He didn't have to give me a lecture. I saw it. I saw the way he was treated. We worked together at first teaching. I saw how students treated him. I saw how employees refused to use um, his preferred names, like, and how he generously and graciously corrected them every single time, right? So I thought about how so many folks assume um, that he is a heterosexual 
cisgender man and how he has to continuously like you know explain his different identities to folks just something as simple as like when he got married and what the assumption was when he got married and how like he couldn't even celebrate with our colleagues about his marriage without having to explain parts of his identity and that's something I don't ever have to do and I'm just saying when people say that they don't it's about their privilege they're probably around the same kind of people because the more you expand your friend grouping the people that are in your life you see it right like as a woman sometimes I feel like the hardest part if I'm being honest is like talking to men some men about what it's like being a woman in this country right now right and just understanding what they experience like and then what it means being a black woman in this country right now right and just putting yourself in the other person's shoes and really practicing what it means to be empathetic when you listen. Like one thing you learn as a DI practitioner is can you put yourself, what is it like? What does it feel like to be someone, you know what I mean, from that particular background and acknowledging that. And then you can like let go of this whole insecurity about privilege. We all have it in some ways. I mean, some folks have it more, have more of them. It's not, it's not the Olympics, but I'm just saying, if you're a white girl in this country, (laughs) you're kind of like, yeah, but we all have it and we all have spaces where we don't have to, you know, I don't have to defend who I want or who I love ever. Right. And that's a big deal because if you are part of the LGBTQ plus community, you're doing that all the time even when you don't want to, even when you're just like trying to have dinner. I've been in so many spaces with my friends who are LGBTQ, where just like they can get through a dinner sometimes without it coming up and him to like defend their choices. And it's ridiculous. So, you know, know we're we're running out of time here, but one thing I want to ask you is, are we getting better? You know, because sometimes we talk about, you, you mentioned it, right? The world's a mess right now. And I think growing up, a lot of us felt like we were heading in a good direction, right? And, and it seems like, you know, over the past, you know, few years, especially with the pandemic and everything and, and George Floyd, and it felt like, it felt like, oh, wow, maybe I wasn't aware that how, how bad things were in certain places. And that's obviously a privilege as well. But are we, you know, are we going to see it in our lifetimes of, of we're not going to fix it, but are we, are we, are we heading in a good direction? I mean, I think that's almost an impossible question to answer, but what I will say, though, is when you were talking, like, and you said, when, like, when you were younger, you felt like we were going in the right direction. And I feel like as someone who grew up, like, where I did, I didn't. This isn't new for me, right? Like, the space that we're in right now, it's like, this country's a mess. I'm saying everybody else who isn't from a marginalized community is finally seeing the mess, right? And there have been a lot of reasons why now we all get to see it, technology, right? And just awareness. And there are more folks, unlike, unlike, representing groups, part of these platforms that get to share it. But this is where I've been and most people I know who like like me like 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 my entire life. So the optimism that some folks have had was never sort of my reality. Sure. Right. Like that was never it wasn't pessimist, but it just was I think what's changed is for folks from underrepresented backgrounds like myself and others, you're taught pretty early on, right? When you are from an underrepresented group, that dominant culture's comfort is more important than your psychological and emotional safety. And what you begin to do is dilute or suppress certain parts of yourself or certain things you say, right? We begin to edit ourselves so much, especially in those spaces, because we're so afraid of how what we say might affect you, 
And that's how we know that dominant culture is sort of the focus in our country because your comfort is supposed to be more important than anything that's going on with me. So I guess a short answer to your question, Dave, is to me, this is what progress looks like. The fact that I get to come on here and talk to y'all for an hour and not censor myself and, you know, have a brave moment and talk about what, like, what my experience is like. If I look, look back 10, 15 years ago when I was in college, I would have never done this. Never. Right. Never. I would, you know, I would have never been brave enough to have those conversations. And the fact that I can do that now and right. And that this like we're normalizing. This is part of our conversation. To me, it's, it's immense progress. We do not have a speak up culture. And how can we fix things like what you were saying? Any of things if we're too afraid to even talk about it. So it's going to be baby steps. I think we've gotten really far in the fact that like I can turn my TV on after we hang up. Right. And surf through channels and probably have and probably see at least one podcast or, you know, news segment that's going to focus on this today. I don't I don't ever watch the news anymore for an hour without them addressing some racial tension, racial injustice, gender injustice. Right. The LGBTQI plus community. That is amazing progress. There was a time where we could go a whole hour watching the news and nothing like this came up. I watched the news this morning. They were talking about like the. Um, the hearings that are going for that January 4th riot. And then they were talking about um, the Uvalde shooting. And like it's just, it's something that we're constantly doing now in our culture. And to me, that's what progress looks like. Now, are we where we need to be? Absolutely not. But we're if we continue to do this, continue to create grave spaces, push ourselves, like Paul was saying, stop getting all on our feelings about identifying privilege, decenter yourself so you can think about other people. Um, all these things have to happen. And as long as we can continue to push the conversation, then I think we are. But I think we have some pretty entrenched problems like in the U.S. You're right. We cannot, when you look at the history, systemic racism has been going on for 400 years in this country. So when you say what's progress look like, <laughs> it looks like us addressing 400 years of systemic oppression in this country. And it's just like, yeah, we got to get roll our sleeves up and be patient. Because this is going to take a long time. And and I mean, if I'm being honest, it's also every audience isn't like you two either. You know what I mean? So we have to get to a space where we stop resisting these conversations. And I saw having to do so much work on my end, making people comfortable with this and just get comfortable being uncomfortable. Like I loved your term, speak up culture. I love mm-hmm. that, right? Because a place people are comfortable speaking up. And that's yeah. something that uh, that we all need to get a little more comfortable with. We do. We do. You guys are okay. already, but <laughs> <laughs> let me ask you this because I, before we let you go, you know, I need to, you know, uh, acknowledge that, you know, one of the things Paul and I have talked about quite a bit on this podcast is that, you know, our jobs so often we, we let them define us, but it's not all of who we are. Right. So tell me a little bit about what you like to do for fun outside of work. How when, when you when you need to turn off from this and and and, and go out and and, you know, I'm sure you live, you live your life every day and it impacts every aspect of your life. But, but what do you like to do for fun? Oh, my goodness. Well, I was just telling Paul before we started that I'm in I am a Peloton. I'm obsessed with <laughs> the Peloton. So I do that for fun. I also love to cook. Oh my goodness, I love to cook. I made the most amazing shrimp alfredo yesterday with some truffle oil on top. Um, so yeah, I'm like, I'm a huge cook and my family is really important to me. We're a really tight knit family. So anytime I can, I invite them over and I cook for them or just hang out with them. My sister just had um, a daughter three years ago and I'm obsessed. 
Oh my goodness. I'm obsessed with her. She's my best friend, which says a lot about me because <laughs> I shouldn't have a three-year-old best friend, but we like legit have conversations about preschool fights and who's not her best friend anymore. And I'm all in. <laughs> I'm like, we're both done with Jamie. Like, <laughs> Spill the preschool like tea. Feeling apple yeah. juice the night the day before. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, um, that kind of a perfect lead into our fast five. We just ask five quick questions, uh, just looking for your instant response, uh, all kind of fun stuff. What, do you remember your very first concert? Yes. And what was it? TLC. TLC. There you go. Oh, that's all awesome. Right. Uh, how about your favorite concert you've ever been to? Favorite concert, um, Drake, a Drake concert. But I have to say, I'm a huge Drake fan, so I, it was no competition. But he didn't <laughs> disappoint. Drake, it was a Drake and Migos concert, but Drake was. I remember that tour. I remember that tour. Oh, you do? Yeah, 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 yeah. How about your favorite vacation you've ever been on? Oh my goodness, this is so hard. But it's, this wasn't a vacation technically, but um, I went to. I spent a summer in Cape Town, South Africa, for a study abroad. And in love with the city, could go back five times over. Very cool. How about, you mentioned loving to cook. What's your favorite guilty pleasure meal? Oh my God, a soul food meal that I don't need to be eating, but with all the trimmings, <laughs> fried chicken, <laughs> macaroni and cheese, collard greens and sweet potatoes. Um, <laughs> like, yes, that, yeah, I come from a really Southern family, so definitely. Last question. What is your, what's your theme song? There's a, you know, a Dr. Deb TV show, TV cameras follow you all around throughout your life. What is the song that plays over the opening credits to your TV show? Oh my goodness. Probably Flawless by Beyonce. There you go. (laughs) Hey, uh, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your, your openness today and, and uh, sharing things with us. Cause I I know people have a lot of questions about this and, and I, and I, uh, you know, again, baby steps. Right. But, but I help, I appreciate you giving us uh, uh, your time today. If somebody does want to reach out to you, uh, what's the best way for them to reach you? Um, through any of the social media platforms, but my email address is not that long, dprimus at oakviewgroup.com. And also my LinkedIn, which is just Dr. Debonair Oaks Primus. It's long. And yeah, those two are probably like the easiest ways to get to me. Awesome. Well, hey, we really appreciate your time today and uh, uh, best of luck. We look forward to uh, having an update from you before too long. Oh, thank you. And thank you guys for having me. Thank you so much. Yeah, and a big thanks to everybody for listening to this episode of Adventures in Venue Land. Remember, you can subscribe and find more episodes wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. We'd love your five-star reviews so you can help others find us. Until the next adventure, I'm Dave Rettelberger. And I'm Paul Hooper. Thanks for listening, everyone. Adventures in Venue Land is a side project of the Event and Arena Marketing Conference a nonprofit organization bringing together people in the field of live entertainment to discuss marketing, publicity, and sales trends. Find out more at eventarenamarketing.com. Audio editing and mixing by Camille Faulkner. Design and digital advertising by Megan Ebeck. Copywriting and publicity by Samantha Marker. Guest booking and brand strategies by Paul Hooper. Guest research by Dave Rettelberger. Marketing Strategies by Paul Hooper, Megan Ebeck, and Samantha Marker. Thanks for joining us. Until the next adventure.